This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portio. My name is Andrew Carroll. And uh, today we are discussing horror icon, but also art house darling Brad Dourif. Andrew, run down his history. Brad Dourif was born in Huntington, West Virginia in 1950. He began acting in school before moving to community theatre and eventually off-Broadway. He was spotted by Milos Foreman, who cast him in his adaptation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for which Dourif was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, and for which he won a BAFTA and the Golden Globe. Despite varied work initially, Dourif quickly became known and relied upon for intensely psychotic villains, gleeful henchmen, and snivelling sycophants. These include his consistent role as Chucky in the Child's Play series, Grima Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings, The Gemini Killer in The Exorcist 3, Mississippi Burning, and a seemingly endless list of TV villains. He has worked several times with director Werner Herzog, who has cast him in The Wild Blue Yonder, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, and My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? On TV, he is best known for his role as Dr. Amos Doc Cochran on Deadwood and as psychic serial killer Luther Lee Boggs on the X-Files episode Beyond the Sea. His daughter Fiona Dourif is also an actor and has appeared alongside her father in the Child's Play films Curse of Chucky, Cult of Chucky and will do so again in the TV series Chucky set to air this year. It was your idea to cover Dourif which uh, going on the logic you've laid out in previous episodes meant you wanted to check out something with the actor uh, that he was in. So was it that X-Files app, Lord of the Rings, what was the deal? Well we've covered Lord of the Rings before and I think I spent as much time talking about um, Grima Wormtongue in that as I did talking about Carl Urban, which was the actual actor we were covering. Um, I've been a big champion of The Exorcist 3 ever since I first saw it a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I try to get as many people as I can to watch it. Um, I feel like it's it's a pretty rated movie at this among horror fans anyway. But um, he had, he's one of my favourite parts of that. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you pitched her because I, I always love to see him in a movie. And uh, yeah, we as you mentioned, we've uh, talked about him in previous pods uh, in passing, you know, like when we talked about Mississippi Burning and Lord of the Rings. I just find him so striking and compelling on screen. He's got such a great face and so much presence. And I also think what's interesting about him is that obviously he's most famous for his work in the horror genre and being part of these iconic franchises like Chucky. Um, he's in the third Exorcist. He's in the fourth Alien. He's in an iconic X-Files app. And because of that, I tend to associate him with these more centric, deranged characters, which he can play really well with his kind of wide eyes and sort of deep, raspy voice. But you can forget, like, he can do more than that in that he only really became a horror icon post-Child's Play, you know, the first Chucky film in 1989. And for 10 or 15 years before that, did a lot of diverse work in dramas and art house fair. And his, you know, his debut performance in One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is so beautiful and human and pure. And so I'm glad we can talk about those two sides of him. You want to uh, jump right into One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Sure. Brad Dourif plays Billy Bibbit, an anxious young man with a stutter and a fellow patient of Randall Patrick McMurphy in the Oregon State Mental Hospital. Randall helps Billy overcome his anxiety and stuttering in the face of Nurse Ratched's tyranny. And yeah, yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is like one of the big Oscar movies. Like there's a, It Happened One Night, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs, all three of which won the big five uh, Oscars, uh, including Best Actor and Best Actress for Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher. And Brad Dourif was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He didn't win, but he won um, a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actor and the Golden Globe for Best First Best Debut or something like that. Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. All right. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother's going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends, you know that. Um, please no, 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 don't t- t- tell my m- Don't you m- think you should mother. have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? Yeah, it's just a really good, like you said, it's just a really good human 
pure performance. Like he, he this guy's always the, this guy Billy Bibbit is always just holding himself as if he's waiting for the next shoe to drop. He always just looks so vulnerable and scared. Um, and then it's just nice to see. It's so good to see um, McMurphy just bring this more um, you know adventurous and human and even romantic side out of uh, Billy. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I agree with everything you're saying. If I had to sum up why I think it resonated so strongly with audiences and still does to this day, nearly 50 years later, I think it's it just managed to be so fiercely empathetic to its characters and sincere in the story it's telling, but never like saccharine or sanitized. Like It's like a gritty and at times like very kind of uncompromising movie. And I find a lot of either films about topical problems or human stories of kind of unexpected friendship can never quite strike that balance and um, I think two major factors of how Cuckoo's Nest does that is one it's directed by Milos Forman who came from the Czech New Wave and it's a movement which headstuff contributor Tom Rowley in an article about it described it as a cinema of empathy and anarchy combining thoughtful sensitivity with giddy energy and while he's describing like Czech movies that Forman made like Fireman's Ball I think that equally applies to Cuckoo's Nest in that the movie's shot in this very naturalistic and observational manner but Forman will have like 10 characters in a scene and he'll just keep cutting between them all throughout the scene as they split into like these little side quests and get more and more riotous like there's the therapy scenes there's the scenes on the boat there's the scene with uh, poor Scatman Crothers <laughs> and the whole movie feels very fast paced even though it's mostly just characters kind of talking in rooms but um, I also think a huge credit should go to the actors and how clearly devoted they were to their characters Like, and some of that is again down to Foreman because the movie actually shot in a real psychiatric hospital for added realism and apparently before shooting the actors did a week of rehearsals where they watched the real psychiatric patients in the hospital go about their daily routine and at group therapy uh, also while they were shooting the movie like Foreman would roll cameras uh, when the cast members didn't know it so he could capture kind of the real moment and there's also stories about how devoted the cast were even when the cameras weren't rolling and on IMDb it states that the during the first time Jack Nicholson arrived on set he was so disturbed by how realistic the rest of the cast was that he ran outside and asked do they ever break character which is amazing and like it's it's naturalistic to the point that you say to myself like like there must be no script like this is all improvised like, did you find that? Um, occasionally, yeah, I think I do agree what you're saying. I think like um, with a car- with a movie like this, the ensemble and an ensemble so big, it's kind of it's can be kind of a risk that you lose. You can lose certain characters in it, but like all these characters just have so many moments together that uh, you kind of just fall in love with e- with all of them, even though you know some of the some of them are just re- like really belligerent or you know it's kind of like. Like a lot of mental illness that we see in films will be, you know, it'll be depression or anxiety or um, stuff like that. So like it's a, it's an often an easy kind of way to find your find for an actor to find themselves in, or a script to find its way into like uh, real emotional stakes or just strong emotion. And I think this film handles handles it all, and the actors themselves handle handle it all so sensitively that uh, it um, not only does it feel real, but it feels you know fair minded. You know, it shows, like, the good and the bad. Yeah, like, there's, there's just... In the scenes of them gambling together or partying, there's just no sense of artifice or even just the burden of them ever having to kind of, like, over-exaggerate some aspect of their illness or personality to push the plot forward. Like, it, it just feels very authentic. And I think it's cool that we meet the characters in the same way Nicholson's Murphy does because we, we don't know anything about them. And just by watching them over the course of the movie, we grow to know and love them. Even though we only really ever learned the bare minimum about their pasts before being in the hospital. Like, you just kind of discover more about them from just the way they communicate, their banter, their body language. And I think that applies to Dourif as well because he just sticks out from the beginning of the movie amongst all these other patients because of just how young he looks. Like, because I think the character must be in his, like, early or mid-twenties. He's, he's very handsome in the movie with the kind of floppy hair and big eyes and you know over the course of this movie through this physical stick of his stutter and the one or two details we learn about his past in the scene with Ratched in that he, you know we know he has an overbearing mother and that he self-harmed after being rejected by a woman he proposed to um, who had suggested he didn't know very long and while it's never stated outright you sort of just get the sense that he's one of these people who just feels emotions so deeply and intensely that he's almost too pure for the world and that his stutter is a manifestation of the the shame he feels for having these very human desires, like wanting love and intimacy. And I, I think you're meant to interpret that his mother wasn't very understanding of these things, but Nicholson's McMurphy does because he's so young at heart, even though he's a lot older than him. And I, I think 
that's why they suddenly build such a strong bond over the course of the movie. Like there's that amazing scene where Billy is heartbroken that McMurphy is going to escape the hospital and McMurphy pulls Billy aside and invites him to stay with him in Canada when he's ready to leave in his own time. And you just see Billy's face like light up with joy and he erupts into this grin and it's so beautiful and delicate. But And I think like similarly it feels like such a big moment when Billy loses his virginity and is confronted by Ratchet about it in front of all the other patients who are, who are so proud of him. And Ratchet says like, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And he's like, no, I'm not. And it's the first time he doesn't stutter in the movie and you're like, yeah, yeah. And... But the floor then is like pulled out from under you when Ratchet says, but, but what's your mother going to think? And you just see the realization hit Billy and he begins to stutter and struggle to get his words out even more than he had previously. And yeah, spoilers alert for the 46 year old movie. Things don't turn out too well. And he takes his life out of sh- the shame that he feels in that moment that he just can't help but feel. And it's so devastating. And it really feels like an all is all hope is lost type moment. And it also turns Ratchet from feeling like just an infuriating bureaucrat to feeling like Satan. Like, I think if it wasn't for Dourif's amazing work as Billy, Netflix wouldn't have greenlit a prequel about Nurse Ratchet. Because Netflix had to be like, there has to be a tragedy in Ratchet's past so bad that turned her into the monster who would do that to Billy. We need a schlocky eight-episode series with an overly qualified cast that feels totally separated in aesthetics from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Just to justify it. Just to just to, as their front for like whatever drug running operation they've got going on. Is it cool if I go on to talk about uh, Wise Blood? So this is a 1979 black comedy which saw legendary director John Huston, who you know people may know, Asphalt Jungle, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Golden Age of Hollywood type director. Him adapting uh, Flannery O'Connor's acclaimed novel of the same name and one which has been described as unfilmable. So uh, Durf plays the lead character, Hazel Hayes Motes, a 22-year-old veteran of an unspecified war who was discharged after an injury. And he's the grandson of a traveling preacher. He's played briefly in flashback by John Huston. And uh, Motes grew up struggling with doubts regarding salvation and original sin. And this and his experiences at war leave Motes an avowed atheist with him intending to spread a gospel of anti-religion. So he, he moves to a new city to spread the word of his own religious organization, The Truth of Church Without Christ. Uh, you go to the top of them stairs and repent, boy, and renounce your sins and distribute these tracts to the people. I'm as clean as you are. Mortification, blasphemy, what else? If I was in sin, I was in it before I ever committed any. There ain't no change coming me. I don't believe in sin. Nothing matters but that Jesus don't exist. Go distribute them tracts to the people. I'll take them up there. Throw them in the bushes. You'd be watching. See, can you see? Yeah, what's very interesting about Wiseblood and Dirk's career is that, like, he breaks onto the scene with this very sensitive performance of a good-hearted, likable man suffering with mental health issues and a deep shame in Cuckoo's Nest. But as his career goes, the kindness and humanity of his character sort of gets filtered away until he winds up playing a lot of just villains. And, like, yeah, he plays serial killers in The Exorcist uh, 3, X-Files, Chucky. And I think, strangely enough, Wisebud feels sort of like the bridge between those two things. Because he's playing this anti-hero who is sort of Travis Bickle-like, sort of Daniel Plainview-esque, kind of like Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker. At the very beginning of the movie, we know Hazel has suffered quite a bit in his life. And over the course of the movie, we just... uh, essentially watch him sour and grow more unhinged and villainous and Rotten Tomatoes in their kind of, you know, when they synopsize all the reviews that have like a little descriptor at the top, they describe his performance as vinegary, which is a a perfect description because he's a bit like the dark inverse to Billy Bibbit in Cookie's Nest in that he's different to Billy in that he takes very active steps to try and live a life free from his shame and or in this case kind of religious guilt like he's out in the world and he's like determined with every fiber of his being. However, like Billy, he's just got this deep shame he can't escape from whereby he's constantly obsessing over theological matters and what god would think of him even though he says he doesn't care what god will think of him and it feels like a compulsion like something beyond his control like very interestingly the first thing he does when arriving back from the war is purchase clothes to change out of his army uniform and he chooses to buy this terrifically severe looking hat and suit that looks like a preacher's outfit and everyone is like are you a preacher you're dressed like a preacher and he's like no (laughs) him on the cover is actually him in the the really 
striking suit and him pointing and it's just an amazing poster similarly later when he sees harry dean stanton as this blind preacher spreading the word of the lord hazel is drawn to him which stanton's character suggests is because of a repressed desire for religious salvation and furious upon hearing this modes begins like shouting blasphemies to the crowd and declaring that like he will found his own anti-god street preaching ministry but like no matter how hard he tries to avoid religion he just keeps involuntarily surrounding himself with it and Durf is just so hypnotizing and alive and darkly hysterical, delivering these like angry, impassioned church sermons in the slightly kind of old-timey dialogue. And anytime that's happening, the movie's really cooking. And though Hazel is not always an easy hang as a character, because it's a bit frustrating watching someone be an asshole to everybody and then just constantly make the same mistakes over and over again. Like he feels like a living, breathing person, thanks to Durf, because it's just the way Durf carries himself in scenes. A lot a lot of the movie is just following the actor as Hazel striding with like seemingly like a lot of purpose like and with and or driving with an intensity that suggests he like knows where he's going and he's obsessed with this terrible car that he drives that constantly keeps breaking down but ultimately over the course of the movie it's it's revealed he's just kind of wandering aimlessly it's all dead ends he has no idea where he wants to go or what he wants to do he's just a slave to his whims and neuroses the metaphor i kept thinking of was like a dog chasing a car like what would it what would the dog do if he caught up with the car like nothing uh that's the character's sort of tragedy like he wants to escape god but he doesn't know what to replace that obsession with that's all he's ever known and Dirk looks and sounds great feels air appropriate builds a rich internal life for the character for the movie as a whole i wish it was on his level because i think the issue with these um so-called unfilmable novels is oftentimes the a to z plotting within them is actually very thin but what makes the book's great is the writing and the way authors can describe the emotions and inner workings of characters minds and go into such an incredible amount of detail which isn't really a quality that can always be replicated in cinema because it, that's a visual medium and i haven't read wise blood so i'm not qualified to say if that's why this fell a bit short for me um and i actually think durf has a really sharp astute handle on what makes the character of hazel tick yeah and he conveys that through his performance but i, I did feel the strain of the thin plot while watching because it's just a series of kind of odd vignettes and encounters that are tied together by hazel and don't always cohere into something more substantial it kind of lacked for me the sort of escalating kind of propulsive pace of something like say taxi driver there will be blood or any other movies with anti-heroes and another thing i think i kept thinking of watching was the coen brothers and their similar in tone dark comedy drama character stories like barton fink or inside leon davis movies about these like flawed characters with rambling stories and have weird detours and moments of surreality like and they've talked about how influenced they were by flannery o'connor but those coen brothers movies are tight as a drum and are really consistent in terms of tone whereas wise blood was made in the 70s where hollywood cinema to to mostly its credit but occasionally its detriment was a lot looser and tended to include a lot of scenes which didn't always push the plot forward but helped to establish kind of place and character and i just think there maybe is a little too much of that on top of an already kind of freewheeling plot and light vignette story that there, there's just stretches where you sort of zone out and lose patience with it but it is very interesting and is worth seeking out but to me at least it wasn't the sort of masterpiece i hoped when i hear john houston made a movie about an intense street preacher with brad durf <laughs> yeah yeah i get you i suppose while i'm here i might as well take on another um unfilmable adaptation of a book and talk about dune yeah go for it yeah so um in david lynch's 1984 adaptation of frank herbert's novel uh Kyle mclaughlin stars as the duke's son in the far far future who leads uh, desert warriors against the galactic empire and his father's evil nemesis to free their desert world from the emperor's rule and the reason they are all fighting is over this precious commodity called melange or spice which has miraculous qualities mentat fighter devries message for mentat fighter devries the baron is impatient for Lico's reply It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of sapu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of sapu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It feels like people have been trying to adapt this for years despite the fact that it, it's apparently very dense in its themes and world building and i think they're trying to adapt it because it's very popular it's one of the most read sci-fi books ever it's kind of a hero's journey adventure story it's got all these cool characters and it you know it takes place in you know all these like fantastical different planets so i, I think there's a sense that if someone could manage to take its various themes and multiple characters and their complex connections to each other and translate to the screen in a way that didn't dumb them down, but that a general multiplex audience
audience could follow and understand that an adaption could be a big hit and spawn a franchise because there's lots of sequel and prequel novels in the same universe. Like It could be Star Wars for adults, essentially. And so acclaimed surrealist filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky tried to mount a production of it in the 70s and that never came to fruition. There's a great documentary about it, about what it would have been. And then in the 80s, another acclaimed surrealist filmmaker, David Lynch, tried to bring it to the screen and succeeded, but it was critically reviled at the time although it has gained a bit of a cult following. And now later in the year, we are getting Denis Villeneuve's stab at the same story, which will cover, I think, only the first half of the book, which based on Lynch's movie is probably a good idea. Um, Because Dune's a real mess with like good stuff in it, Brad Dourif for one, but as a piece of kind of blockbuster sci-fi storytelling, it's a disaster. (laughs) And I, I, I don't really blame Lynch for it, even though I think getting a man whose main skill is conjuring a dreamlike logic for his films like A Razorhead and Blue Velvet and Mahon Drive probably isn't the best choice if you want to make something that could rival Star Wars. But he didn't have final cut on the movie and the producers wanted it to be around two hours or two hours 15. But Lynch's intended cut was closer to three hours. So apparently to the, reduce the runtime down, numerous scenes were cut. Patrick Stewart, who's in the movie, said every cast member lost two scenes to cuts made in editing. And then on top of that, new scenes were filmed that simplified plot elements, really stilted awkward voiceover narrations were added, along with this new introduction by Virginia Madsen, which, who, which is so confusing because her character is very minor in the movie. So she's an odd choice to open it. But also she's laying out all the, you know, the Mark Kermode calls like the friddly ding, the hiddly bong, you know, like the, all the plot exposition stuff. And you're already struggling to keep up. And then she takes a pause and is like, and oh yes, I forgot to tell you. And then she just lays out more stuff. Like even the narrator of the movie can't keep up. <laughs> and Roger Ebert's review at the time is very harsh, but he's kind of right when he says it has one of the most confusing screenplays of all time. And he, he said, the movie is so many characters, so many unexplained or incomplete relationships and so many parallel courses of action that sometimes a toss of whether we're watching a story or just an assembly of meditations on themes introduced by the novels yeah it just keeps coming to multiple different characters and strands of the plot which are all meant to feel interconnected and vast so there's the heroes who are split up um who are duke leto and his son paul from the house of treaties there's the bad guys who are the harkonnens there's the emperor who's playing these two sides against each other there's this religious order of sisters the benny Gesserit, and maybe in a longer version of the story that could all be presented on screen coherently but in this compromised form characters just sort of show up say a bunch of bullshit and dune jargon and like plot exposition and then just exit and you kind of struggle to keep up in terms of like characters relationships to each other and then sometimes you have the opposite problem where max von Sydow will show up and is sort of shot and coded in a way where his character is going to be like a really big deal but then just serves like no consequence as far as like the story goes like the movie does have a sort of dream logic that you can see in other lynch movies but you watch a kind of like big budget blockbuster with all these 80s stars after years of being trained as to what to expect from this type of movie you know when it trips up doing things that those movies do so well your mind just starts to kind of reject it it's got two things going for it It looks amazing especially after years of like every gray looking mcu movie with boring cgi that you know where all the film is shot in like a studio in atlanta you can tell lynch went to exotic locations built extravagant sets there's a real tangibility to the scenery of the movie the colors also really popped on my projector and then even when there's like a janky pre-digital CGI effect, they look cool in a sort of kind of Barbarella, Flash Gordon kind of way. And the cast performances are really good too, probably because they were on real sets and had stuff to play off of. In particular, Brad Dourif and like all the other actors playing the villains are incredibly entertaining because it's really the only time Lynch's sensibilities, whereby, you know, he is a thing for, you know, surreal imagery and really weird and gross characters who personify evil it's when those things kind of align with a traditional blockbuster, you know, which where you kind of want the villains to be entertaining, and, but also, like, are a problem and need to go away. <laughs> like, they need to be vanquished. And, um, yeah, Durf plays um, P- Peter DeFries uh, and Mentat, which is a human specifically trained to perform mental functions rivaling computers, which are forbidden universe-wide. And to do this, they ingest Sappho, a liquid that amplifies mental powers. This is all still vaguely alluded to in the movie, but is explained in the book. DeFries works in the employ of uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Kenneth Macmillan, uh, the villain of the piece. This immensely fat man with pus sores all over his body who has an anti-gravity costume to support his weight, allowing him to float as he schemes. And he's really decadent and horrible. He's basically an evil version of the hedonism bot from Futurama. And Macmillan and Dura just make such a good pair of villains playing characters. Sort of akin to your favourite villain henchman duo. Dracula and Renfield because Durf is addicted to this drug Sappho and the spice and is sort of tweaking out in a way that recalls Renfield at times 
Like he mutters to himself, he's intense, he's awkward in social situations, he speaks a bit too loudly. He also looks really strange too in a good way. He's got uh, this hair that sort of just looks like an explosion, it's just all out. He's got like huge bushy eyebrows and he's got sores around his lips as a result of drinking the Sappho drug. The designs of the bad guys are really good. Harkonnen looks amazing as well. Despite his flaws, like he's he's so intelligent mentally because he's this mentat guy that um, he's useful to the Baron who um, is this decadent monster who mostly stays confined to his castle, which is a bit like Dracula. But then Defries is a little bit more power than Ranfield because of how immobilized the Baron is and because of his wits. So he's a bit like Grand Moth Tarkin in Star Wars in that like he gives out orders and like he's bossy to his underlings. I've also seen Defries be compared to Durf's character Grimma Wormtongue in, from Lord of the Rings, although I wouldn't be as familiar as I haven't seen those movies in over 15 years, but I perhaps do was a dry run for that. In Dune, like, Durf is just, like, comically villainous. Like, the movie never tries to give him any depth or make him sympathetic, which is good because it's got enough going on as it is. And it, it makes, when he get, eventually gets his comeuppance, actually one of the film's best scenes uh, because it's very satisfying to watch. And Lynch must have liked working with him because he gives him a role in his follow-up and re- return to form, Blue Velvet, playing one of Dennis Hopper's characters, uh, Frank Boots crew members. One of the fun things about watching David Lynch's Dune ahead of the Villeneuve reboot of the property is comparing the actors in the original to the new one and thinking, wow, yeah, I guess Timothy Chalamet is this generation's Carl McLaughlin. And I thought I might give you a little just brief quiz where I name an actor from the original and you guess which actor is playing the same character in the new one. Okay. All right. Jürgen Prochnow who um, people may know from Das Boot, and he's the villain in In the Mouth of Badness, the John Carpenter film. So who do you think? Oh, of? shit. Um, I'm not that familiar with the characters in Dune. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess it's um, Dave Bautista's character. No, Oscar Isaac. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, he's German. I just assumed he was bad. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Stewart. Oh. Um, this is insane. It's either Jason Momoa or Josh. Uh, what's his Josh? It's Josh Brolin. You got it right. Josh Brolin. Yeah, it's thank Brolin. You. Um, Everett McGill, Big Ed from Twin Peaks. <laughs> Arguably the weirdest one. I have no idea. Javier Bardem. <laughs> oh shit! Okay. That is odd, yeah. Yeah, um, Sean Young, who pe- you may know from Blade Runner, is one of the androids. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson? Zendaya. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense, yeah. And uh, Brad Dourif. Uh, I, I don't know, to be honest. David Dasmalkian from Polka Dot Man. That actually, that's the closest. Yeah, probably, it's yeah. pretty great, yeah. actually, yeah. Um, yeah, weird. <laughs> Very odd, yeah. Uh, I think it's more reflective of how weird the casting was in the original Dune than in terms of Denny Villeneuve's vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have I a agree. character who has clearly kind of an Asian-inflected name in the David Lynch one, and he's played by um, Dean Stockwell, <laughs> the guy who sings in Blue Velvet. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode, we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcatcher of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. I know that Fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 Euro plus VAT per month. 
When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Do you want to talk about Child's Play? I feel I've been talking for ages. Sure. Brad Dourif plays Charles Lee Ray, uh, a vicious serial killer who, after being shot by police, transfers his soul into a good guy doll and continues his murderous rampage as the killer doll, Chucky. Tell me you died, John. Your choice. No, no, I'll tell you. You have to transfer your soul out of the doll into that of the first human being you revealed your true self to. You mean the first person I let in on the fact that I was really alive? I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. The first person I let in on my little secret was a six-year-old kid. I'm gonna be six years old again. Well, John, it's been fun, but I gotta go. I have a date with a six-year-old boy. And you have a date with death. I probably should have watched more than one Child's Play film for this because, you know, the first Child's Play is like 86 minutes long. But I do think it is very impressive. It's it's kind of quite strange that Durov hasn't done more voice work. He always seems to be operating on this, on either end of this kind of five octave range where he's either like, it's either delivered in like a struggled whisper or this unrestrained bellow. It's A better example is The Exorcist 3, but um, the one good jump scare in um, Child's Play is when um, Chucky is still for, I'd say the first 40 minutes of the movie. And then once um, Andy, who owns Chucky, his mom finds out that the doll doesn't need batteries or doesn't have batteries even. She finds the battery separate to the doll. Uh, so she's like, this doll is possessed. I'm going to burn it in the fireplace. And then as soon as she like turns on the fireplace and tries to burn the doll, the, the doll just snaps into movement and Brad Dourif is just bellowing, you stupid bitch, I'll teach you to fuck with me. And uh, that's great. I do think in, like, just in terms of his performance, it does kind of, his vocal performance kind of conflicts with the quite limited puppetry that the film uh, has on display. Because for a lot of it, the doll is just kind of being thrown around, or it's like, its arm is moving like an animatronic, like a very obvious animatronic. That's all I really have to say about Child's Play. It's just, I just found it to be a sillier, lesser version of, like, Friday the 13th or Halloween, and I can just see why this, I know, I understand why these, these movies have their fans, but I understand why. I also understand why Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween or um, a Nightmare on the Nightmare on Elm Street series has more fans. I remember watching it pretty recently when the remake came out because I, I went to the press screening for the remake. I was like, "Oh, if I'm going to review the remake, I might as well see the original." I was actually surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how I, I think it it does kind of go off the rails once Chucky starts moving around. Yeah, but I found it very creepy when it's exploring how creepy dolls are and how kind of uncanny they are, and they're kind of lingering over Chucky, and then like something weird weird will happen in the flat, and then it will cut back to like the doll, and the doll's just there like. Is, is, is kind of freaky but yeah you, we should say even though if we're not going to cover it that like that franchise has a very weird trajectory in that it starts off being pretty serious slasher movie and creepy chiller and then it becomes more like overly comedic as it goes on and um chucky starts to do a lot of bits which i'm, I'm all for apparently they're doing a chucky tv show that's coming out pretty soon isn't that yeah yeah will we talk about the exes three yeah so brad Dourif plays james veneman slash the Gemini killer, the soul of an infamous serial killer inhabiting the body of Patient X in uh, the Georgetown, Washington, D.C. University Hospital. And Patient X is also Damien Karras, who's played by Jason Miller, who is the dead priest who exorcised the demon Pazuzu from Regan McNeil, played by Linda Blair, in the first film. The Gemini killer becomes the focal killer of Lieutenant Kinderman's investigation into copycat killings of which no two perpetrators were the same. So this is kind of a complex character and it's, the performance reflects that because the character's body is that a priest dead for 15 years, possessed by the soul of a serial killer which was saved from hell by an immortal demon. So the night Damien Karras says to, the night Reagan McNeil is exercised and Damien Karras is like, take me instead and jumps out the window and falls to his death down those steps. The Gemini killer is executed on the same night and his soul is snatched by Pazuzu and stuffed into the broken body of Damien Karras which takes about a good 15 years to recover from massive brain death and other horrible things that happen to him. 
So he's found wandering the riverfront and is put into Georgetown uh, Memorial University Hospital, I guess, where uh, his soul then flies out into the neurology ward, possesses an old person who then goes out, escapes with the powers of the demon by crawling on walls or whatever, and murders someone, basically using the same methods as the Gemini killer. And a different old person is possessed each time so that no true perpetrators of any murder are the same. Sounds very complicated when I explain it. I can assure people that this is a great film, though. The master devised this pretty little scheme as a way of getting back, of creating a stumbling block, a scandal, a horror to the eyes of all men who seek faith, using the body of this saintly priest as an instrument. You know my work. But the main thing is the torment of your friend, Father Karras, as he watches while I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, his friends, and again, and again, and on and on. He is inside with us. He will never get away. His pain won't end. Oh, gracious me. Was I raving? In terms of Dura, he's like, performance is complex by the character's very nature because it's a riotous priest, an evil serial killer and an immortal demon battling for control of the one body. And so like Dorif is often operating at both ends of his range here, the very restrained, struggling whisper and this operatic bellow that sounds like uh, you've just woken up a bear. It literally sounds like he's pulling it from somewhere deep, the, from the, like the base of his spine, beyond his diaphragm and lungs, and just pulling it all up through there and forcing it out of his mouth. It's very, very impressive to watch because it affects his whole face. He goes purple, he's involuntarily crying, and he's sweating buckets as he like, roars and shouts at uh, George C. Scott. Uh, and then he'll just sit back and go, oh, goodness me, was I raving? And a lot of his, nearly all his scenes operate on like the 180 degree arc of conversations so like you know it's shot reverse shot where we see we'll see uh brad Dourif saying something and then it'll turn to who he's speaking to which is usually um george c scott and george c scott will sh- say something or react in awestruck horror at what has just come out of the mouth of his dead friend i think like in terms just in terms of the plot lieutenant kinderman is like mostly playing catch-up with the gemini killer george c scott is good in this like he's like he he's one of the few like action men of horror i think um not that he's been in that many horror films but he's uh, plays a similar role to his character in the changeling who is initially like quite upset and sad and grief-stricken but who eventually like finds this kind of mystery to cling on to and solve to overcome his grief and that's what lieutenant kinderman does in uh, the exorcist 3 but when he comes face to face with the gemini killer he kind of he's kind of he's re- he realizes that like oh shit this is like beyond the psychology and psychosis of a serial killer and it's verged into the demonic I think where the exorcist was kind of about the, the faithfully challenged and the faithless falling kind of back into the arms of this incredibly powerful and arch conservative institution that is the Catholic Church. I think the exorcist three is a bit more open ended in terms of like how it deals with the nature of evil. Like evil is real as the, the exorcist and many other movies have established and ultimately undefeatable. And it's a lot easier to fall into than most of us realize. And well, once again, two powerful conservative institutions in like the police and the Catholic Church win. There's kind of no real winner. One more thing on Dourif in this is that it's like in all of the monologues and the fiery speeches that the Gemini killer gives, it's obviously the Gemini speaking, whose his voice is amplified by the demon, um, or sometimes it's just it's just like an animal roar or um another person speaking entirely but it's father Karras's mouth they're using and it's easy to see like the dead priest's trauma at being locked into his own body by the devil essentially reflected in Dourif's eyes because like even though his mouth is like roaring and shouting and is really expressively angry you can see his eyes are like there's like a deep well of pain and like sadness in there the fact that like just this person going let me out any in any way you can and uh, i think that's it makes um the gemini a bit more complicated because we're aware that there's more than just this psychotic serial killer and an evil demon inside this body yeah 
No, I totally agree. And it, it's kind of cool we're talking about this movie when news is just broken that there's going to be a new trilogy of Exorcist movies. Because Exorcist 3 is about as good as a sequel to The Exorcist as could ever possibly exist. Because, you know, it follows up on the two characters in The Exorcist in which you are actually curious what happens to them next in, you know, Kinderman and also Father Dyer, here played by two different actors, but ones you feel very true to the original characters. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd much rather watch a movie about how the events of The Exorcist shaped their lives and that, you know, and how it affected them, who, you know, people who thought that the world was, like, rational and they understood it and then are confronted with this sort of, you know, crazy situation. I'd much rather watch a movie about that than, I don't catch up with Linda Blair and Helen Burstyn again and just go through the same thing again. I also think there's, like, room to explore further things with Kinderman and Dyer, some of the things you were saying about, like, not being able to ever fully conquer evil, but just trying to fight it is enough. I just adored seeing those characters as longtime friends after their brief scene at the end of the Exorcist's extended cut, which suggested that they they would go on to have like a burgeoning friendship. On top of that, like Exorcist 3 is written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who was the author of the original Exorcist and also Legion, which was the novel basis for the Exorcist 3. And I think he just has a really fine handle on how, how much comedy exactly he can squeeze into this or how much modern style horror he can add into this without making the film feel like it belongs in a different franchise. Because this is an Exorcist movie and is very indebted to the original, but it also interestingly feels like a forerunner in regards to the sort of serial killer investigation subgenre of cinema that becomes more popular with stuff like Sounds of the Lambs and Seven and Saw even though Exodus 3 has supernatural elements and those movies don't. Like, it's pretty faithful sort of, like, detective story about a guy solving a crime when the, the kills are really, like, messed up. And while the Exodus 3 doesn't have their, like, same right time, right place, lightning in a bottle energy of the exorcist where just every directorial or actor and script choice is just perfect, it is definitely more funny and playful and oftentimes more haunting. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it's down to Durf and... Um, I know that the the reason Miller and Durf both play the role of the Gemini Killer, there's a whole complicated story as to why that happened, because originally Miller was offered to reprise his role as Karras, but was unavailable. So I think Blatty then had intended to have Durf just play the Gemini Killer in Karras' body without without Miller and just explain that Kinderman was seeing Karras as he knew him from the Exorcist. And it makes sense to get Durf for the part, because he had also just played a serial killer whose spirit possessed something in the Chucky movies. But however, when the studio decided to name the movie Exorcist 3 as opposed to Legion, they felt they needed to, first of all, add in an exorcism into the movie so that the title made sense, but then to add an actor from the original. So Miller was brought then brought in. And I do think Miller and Durf sharing the role actually makes the whole scenario creepier and weirder and more nightmarish and otherworldly in that you see how tired and weak Karis looks on the outside through Miller, but then you cut to a visual representation of how angry and ugly and manic and depraved all that evil that is uh, has possessed his body through Durf. And uh, I just think the two choices that Durf makes that are really smart and settling um, is never settling on a constant pitch of voice. Like, yeah, obviously his voice is sometimes overdubbed for emphasis, but he'll be talking like casually or jovially and then will suddenly be very serious in tone or will like begin to shout in those like spit speck of monologues and the switch makes the hair like stand up on the back of your neck because you can never fully get a read on him like he's never in a permanent state you know he's fluid and unpredictable which makes sense because he's playing this odd cocktail of you know this lunatic serial killer the demon pazuzu and then somewhere under the surface is kind of the worn out caras and they're all vying for control and it kind of reminds me of how bill skarsgård played pennywise in the recent it where because that character is so fluid as well um also what's really menacing is how mostly when he's talking about his appalling like disgusting crimes he'll talk really jovially about them with like great pride but then when he says a line that a normal person might find or say in kind of a light tone manner in conversation like yeah it makes me chuckle every time or it's the smells that keep us going he says it in like the most dour emotionless way possible he's like it makes me chuckle every time. <laughs> uh, it's the smiles that keep us going. And you just get a sense that his whole outlook on life and his moral compass is just totally backward and warped. And I think those two things make him feel as formidable a threat as the possessed Regan in the original Exorcist, which is no small feat given how iconic that was, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, ju- I just kind of want to point out how like, well, first of all, how great the jump scares are in this movie which is a rare thing but also just how funny this movie is like 
I'll I'll leave, I'll leave it for other people to discover. But there's there's one I will say where um, Kinderman is talking to one of his fellow police officers, one of his subordinates. He's like. In his um, entrance exam, this man was asked, what are rabies and what would you do for them? He answered, rabies are Jewish priests and I would do whatever I could for them. And I think it just is so good. And he has a great monologue later about a carp. Wonderful, wonderful acting by George C. Scott. You can, and it just shows how well he does either end of these very um, great scales of comedy and horror. You know, he has the great monologue uh, in The Exorcist 3 and, you know, that it kind of echoes his role in Stanley Kubrick's um, Doctor Strangelove. And then he has, like, you know, those two great roles in The Changeling and The Exorcist 3 as well. And he's, he's equally as good in both. And Durf has, like, a lot of dark comedy in his scenes too when he's talking about, like, he keeps talking about his crimes as him being, like, a showman and an artist. Or the bit where he's like... Do you like plays? I love plays. Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus. It's so sweet. And you're like, that's the one with all the rape and all the killing. <laughs> you pick the worst one. Um, do you want to talk about the X-Files? Sure. This is an episode called Beyond the Sea. From the, It's the 13th episode of the first season, I believe. And Brad Dourif plays Luther Lee Boggs, a serial killer on death row who claims to have psychic powers and offers to help police find a kidnapped teenage couple. So in the series' first uh, role reversal, uh, FBI Special Agent Dana Scully, uh, played by Gillian Anderson, and Believes Boggs, um, Special Agent Fox Mulder, played by David Duchovny, who uh, was one of the agents who helped catch Boggs, is uh, sceptical. And Scully believes Boggs because whenever she's with him, he shows her a vision of her recently deceased father, who's played by Don Davis from Stargate SG-1, and who also played the Major in uh, Twin Peaks. Or he sings um, Beyond the Sea, uh, which was played at uh, Scully's father's funeral. No! No, I do not believe you! You don't believe me. Maybe you believe yourself. There was... That one time when I was 14 and my parents had gone to bed and I snuck downstairs all alone, got one of my mom's cigarettes and went out onto the porch in the dark. I was so scared. My heart was beating. I mean, they would have killed me if they knew. But I was so excited. Not because of the cigarette. I mean, it was gross, but supposed to. Scully and her dad have this thing where he call, she calls him Ahab and he calls her Starbuck after two characters in um, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. This really creepy bit where um, Scully first meets uh, Boggs um, and Mulder has left the room at this point. He turns to her and goes, did you get my message? Starbuck? And it's like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but I think it's weird because, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Stephen, because you've seen the second season of Twin Peaks, I think. And I think this is what happens in it, is that Scully's dad, he plays the major on Twin Peaks, who's um, Billy's dad, I believe. And there's an odd connection between the two shows, because in Twin Peaks, uh, well, I think he's being tortured or something. He uh, He's asked what his greatest fear is, and he's this really like kind, fatherly man goes, that love isn't enough. Whereas the message in Beyond the Sea is that love is enough and this is a spoiler for the end of the episode because Boggs has realized that everything he's done isn't enough to stave off his ex- his execution so he asks Scully to be there at his execution and he'll like give her the last message her father was trying to say to her when she first saw him so sees his ghost or psychic apparition or whatever and he's speaking but she can't hear and she doesn't so- show up because she already knows what he would have said and there's all these great bits where, like, at her father's funeral, she turns to her mother and asks her, I have to know, was he proud of me? Um, which is something we all want our parents to say to us. And Scully's mother's answer is so simple and beautiful, where she's just like, he was your dad. And Scully echoes that sentiment in the last scene where she's, she goes to visit Mulder, who's been shot in the hospital, instead of going to Boggs' execution. She's like, she, she just says, he was my dad. You know, and it's just that simple. Just, you know, we, we could all want so, such great closure. This episode is kind of like a combination of The Exorcist 3 and The Silence of the Lambs because Brad Dorf is playing like a man who has either has psychic powers or doesn't, but he certainly acts like he's got a lot of voices in his head that are all desperate to come out and all of them don't want to die. And it sort of combines the fury of The Exorcist 3 with the kind of cold, austere design 
presumably due to budgetary reasons, of The Silence of the Lambs. I think one interesting thing, just performance-wise, uh, or technique-wise even, was that Dourif would do, like, deep breathing exercises before um, his scenes, so his entire face, much like in The Exorcist 3, would turn purple, and he'd start to sweat, and, you know, that just, you know, add to, like, all that lank, kind of sweaty, ha- sweaty head of hair he has, and just enhance this um, character who could be, you know, quite rote uh, in a lot of other um, lesser procedurals, I guess. I suppose the monsters of the of the week were were always kind of the colour in this very stark, often kind of clinical feeling show. And like Boggs is like some kind of evil rainbow in this. I think he's a complicated character because, yeah, he's a serial killer, but he also saves Scully's life. And it's kind of like, did he do this as like an act of contrition because he knows he's about to be killed in the in the gas chamber? Or as some kind of last desperate get out of jail free card? This scene, uh, I think this episode is good because Dorif like adds so much to the other performances as well, um, and it, the script is great too. But it's it's always great because like the characters of Mulder and Scully are like very analytical in their personalities, and they often come across as quite cold and um, you know hard to sometimes hard to sympathize with. But it's always good to see them like express like anger or sadness or fear, and this episode is great for that. I think it's one of the first ones where they're really like blowing up either at each other or at other characters. One of the last exchanges of the episode is between Mulder and Scully where he's in the hospital bed and she's saying how she doesn't believe in psychic powers uh, even though she was flip-flopping on the thing which is not what she usually does at the start of the episode. Uh, Mulder is like, um, why, why can't you believe in these? It's a, it's a challenge and she says, I'm afraid to believe. And it's one of her last lines in the episode and it's the inverse of the, t- of the credits last title card which is I want to believe usually. Also kind of sums up her character's arc going forward as well, where she'd be like, you know, become less and less and less and less of a sceptic until the end of the series where, you know, the truth is is finally out there. Yeah. No, it's a gorgeous episode. And uh, I've only seen the first season of The X-Files and then kind of dipped in and out. But it's always one that stuck in my head. And just for that, like the fact that like Brad Dourif is so good in it and it's such a pivotal episode for Scully in that like she's not the sort of sceptic that it's her so more sort of wrestling with her feelings on the stuff that we can kind of, kind of comprehend, which I, I really like. And yeah, no, great episode. And it's on Disney Plus now. And I would even just urge people to just check out uh, Beyond the Sea just as a standalone little like hour movie. That's why I really like the first scenes of the X-Files because I'm less into the mythology of the show and more the monster of the week stuff. And most of that is in the first season. But you could also do like a very good little marathon of like Durf guest cameo appearances in shows because I had to flick through some of the stuff he's in. Like he was in an episode of Miami Vice he was in a couple episodes of Star Trek, Moonlighting, The Equalizer. There's some, some good stuff there that I'm curious to definitely check out. Do, do you want to hit Lord of the Rings? Uh, yeah, sure. So, Brad Dourif plays uh, Grima Wormtongue, an advisor to King Theoden of Rohan, played by Bernard Hill, who has turned traitor and secretly sided with Saruman, played by Christopher Lee, uh, who has promised the feeble, pathetic man, the king's niece, Eowyn, in return for manipulating the grief-stricken, aging King Theoden. Orcs are roaming freely across our lands. Unchecked, unchallenged, killing at will. Orcs bearing the white hand of Saruman. Why do you lay these troubles on an already troubled mind? Can you not see? Your uncle is wearied by your malcontent your warmongering warmongering how long is it since Saruman born you what was the promised price Grima when all the men are dead you will take your share of the treasure you know the way some people suffer from like face blindness or whatever like they don't recognize people or they don't recognize actors they just have this kind of thing where they just don't really recognize people by their faces somehow Exactly, that's what this podcast is for. What I've realised is that I suffer from eyebrow blindness. In that, if so, if unless if someone does or doesn't have eyebrows, I won't notice unless they're particularly strong. So if someone has like really thick eyebrows, like The Rock, say, or some like re- is really able to manipulate them, like The Rock, um, or has a unibrow like Frida Kahlo, I won't notice it. I won't notice them. And it took me nearly twenty years um, to realise that Brad Dourif's character Grima Wormtongue doesn't have eyebrows in this. He just has, you know, a brow, shaved eyebrows, nothing there. Um, and I was, I was like, 
you know, we should find this man more pitiable than we initially do. And I was like, why don't we? And it's because he doesn't have eyebrows. You know, you're just inherently distrustful of someone without some kind of hair on their face. Even, even if he did have eyebrows, his incredibly pale skin and his lank and greasy hair and that, like, voice that just drips venom would have you convinced that this guy is at best untrustworthy and at worst a serial killer. And, like, some of the some of his line deliveries are incredible. Like, I've done this already on the Carl Urban episode, but I'll do it again for uh, for for the sake of it, where he's, he's, like, Gandalf comes along and is trying to break Theoden out of the spell. And Brad Dourif just goes, Why do you lay such troubled thoughts on an already troubled mind? And it's that line delivery alone is like someone dripping poison into your ear. And like even people that grew up with him, because he's like a lo- he was a loyal, dedicated servant of the Kingdom of Rohan, and people like Eowyn or Aemer, who's played by Carl Urban, friend, great friend of the pod, they look at him with disgust and revulsion, having seen him around the castle for thirty years of their lives. This man literally looks like a maggot that grew arms and legs, pulled on a fur robe, and started walking and talking. What's great about the like, and it's kind of how you can tell that Peter Jackson was like a but a small but low budget horror director before the Lord of the Rings, because so much of uh, the early parts of the Two Towers are like this gothic horror chamber piece set in a castle haunted by Grima Wormtongue. Without Dorif in that role, it wouldn't have actors like Otto and Urban wouldn't have the opportunity to just spit these lines like your words are poison or something like that, or like too long have you watched my sister, too long have you haunted her steps at uh, Dourif, where it, it just has such a Dracula feel to it, I guess, except this guy's Renfield, and I guess Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee is Dracula. <laughs> um, and it's like one of these villains who you really want to see get their comeuppance. But in, in fairness, in The Return of the King, he all, in, in The Return of the King, the extended edition, he almost redeems himself because he stabs Saruman in the back. And he would have redeemed himself were he not the same sniveling coward that corrupted Theoden as the one that stabbed Saruman in the back and is then shot by Legolas in The Return of the King. So, like, he's just this... He hasn't grown or changed. He stabs Saruman out of cowardice. You know, it dies the way he lives, essentially. Nice. I read a funny story on IMDb that apparently none of the actors knew that Brad Dourif wasn't English because his accent was so good and he showed up to the premiere and was speaking in his regular voice and everyone was like, why is he doing that terrible American accent? Brad Dourif, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a regular of the... Um, iconic German director Werner Herzog's filmography which makes sense as he tends to work that filmmaker tends to work with actors who can naturally convey a sense of madness and obviously the stories of his collaborations with Klaus Kinski on like Fitzcarraldo or Aguirre the Wrath of God or stuff of legend but then other leading men in his filmography have included Christian Bale, Michael Shannon and Nicolas Cage people were all very capable of kind of being crazy so Durr fits right in that line of men but um, I think I think Dirk Cobbard hurts up four times with the only leading role being the Wild Blue Yonder, um, which is this like fascinating blend of like documentary and fiction. So basically Herzog takes all this real life footage from NASA of astronauts doing drills and then underwater photography and then re-employs them as being part of this epic sci-fi story being narrated by Dirk, who's playing this homesick alien from a dying planet who came to Earth, came to warn Earth not to make the same mistakes his people did, but just no one listens. So the underwater footage stands for his home planet and NASA, the NASA stuff represents his species and kind of Earth's intergalactic journeys. And just the fact that this movie even works at all, let alone is kind of an interesting footnote of the sci-fi genre is a testament to Herzog's just seemingly boundless creativity and Brad Dourif's ability to spin gold out of very little. You know, there's a good deal of detail and poeticism of Herzog's script which uh, on top of having this kind of ecological commentary that Herzog movies often do is is sort of just playing fun with how if aliens actually arrived on earth how quickly unremarkable it would become which is kind of the idea behind District 9 as well which I know we both love um, the big line in the Wobbly Yonder is Durf is describing how his alien race had such big plans for earth and wanted to establish a community there but over the boring hundred and hundreds and hundreds year long journey it took for them to arrive they all just became fed up and tired and he's like you see aliens as these technologically advanced super beings who can destroy New York in two minutes flat well I hate to say this but we aliens all suck <laughs> Yeah, all the, the scenes with Durov are just him delivering a monologue straight to camera in the middle of nowhere in America or over this, he's just talking over this kind of incredible raw footage. And he just looks like himself with a ponytail. There's no alien costume or prosthetics. Yet just by like his emotive and evocative and strange and droll delivery, you're just immediately like, yes, I totally buy you as an alien. <laughs> Something is definitely up with you. And he really brings the story to life as much as he can because the movie at times 
not always because there's limitations to the format and Herzog is probably restricted as to what footage he can use and what parts of this real life footage actually looked otherworldly enough to suit the, his narrative but in certain moments the movie feels surprisingly expansive and perhaps a lot more expansive than many other space movies with like 30 or 50 or 100 times bigger the budget so you know for any Herzog fans intrigued as to what his version of a sci-fi story would look like this is streaming on movie now and it's, it's less than 80 minutes long and is a curious and kind of entertaining oddity I, I, I quite enjoyed it and then, um, yeah, is there, I think we've covered everything. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss? Uh, no, just uh, check out The Exorcist 3. And um, I wish he was in more stuff these days. Yes, it's true. I haven't, um, I was thinking through, so obviously he's going to be in the Chucky series. And then the, the one of the last big credits I noticed he was in was he's in Rob Zombie's Halloween movies. But uh, he tends to reuse kind of horror people all the time. Love to see him show up again in more stuff. Um, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know that gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shani Fernandez for running our socials. If you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. We just released one all about another famous Brad Pitt. Andrew, um, do you, do you want to explain more about our um, new exclusive Headstuff Plus series? Yeah, it's called Leading Legends, where we cover. Uh, actors we wouldn't normally be able to cover such as Brad Pitt where uh, we pick uh, a performance each and just run it down and why we think it's one of their best leading performances and uh, we've got plans to do other people in the future we're literally just about to record a Denzel Washington one so people can be excited for that um, yeah Andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it you can find my writings at Headstuff uh, Film section and Joe.e till next time see you later Cinefuzz bye bye This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.